Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Welcome to the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. I'm devastated. Devastated. I remember in 1982, sitting in a little hostel in Brindisi, watching Eurovision. And I've watched Eurovision before it became popular. But this year, I won't. I'll be boycotting Eurovision. I'll be boycotting SBS on the day because obviously the 2019 Eurovision is coming from Israel. Now, I'm quite happy to watch Eurovision if things dramatically change in Israel. And just in case you don't realise this, that in the month that uh, Israel won Eurovision, more than 130 people were shot and killed by Israeli snipers at the Gaza Fence. Could you imagine what other part of the world of 100 people had been killed by snipers from a government? You can imagine the uh, hullabaloo. So I'm making a sacrifice. I'm boycotting Eurovision. And more importantly, you should be writing to SBS or emailing them and telling them that you won't be turning on. doesn't matter how brilliant their guest presenters are. This year... For the first time since 1982, which is 37 years, I'll be missing Eurovision. Devastated. But, you know, when you've got principles, you need to stick by them. And obviously the boycott divestment sanctions campaign, uh, if you go to their website, you can find out other things that they're actually currently doing. But again... There are things that are intolerable in the world and sometimes you can do something. It can be very small. It may not make any difference. But as long as uh, people understand that there is resistance, it'll help. Okay, if you know what Anarchy is all about, Anarchy Society is a voluntary non-hierarchical society based on the creation of political and social structures which are based on equal decision-making power. That's direct democracy, a society where wealth is held in common and years for the common good. Very old-fashioned ideas, just like those old-fashioned revolutionary ideas of the French Revolution. You know, equality, fraternity, and all that stuff. So, very simple, but why? People say, why? Well, it's very simple. 
You don't need a PhD in politics to understand what anarchism is all about. The word anarchos, ancient Greek, without rulers. Not without rules, as many anarchists seem to believe, and as the rest of society seems to believe. It's without rulers. It's a society without rulers. What gives rulers power? Inequalities in power and wealth. That gives them the opportunity to impose their will on billions of people simultaneously. So the anarchist struggle is the struggle to devolve power. That means break down power and to share wealth, hold it in common so that everybody is able to develop themselves to their fullest potential. It is a struggle that human beings have been involved in since the world was first, you know, human beings were first created. So it is an ongoing struggle. Now, obviously, I won't see an anarchist society in my lifetime, but that's irrelevant. Most likely you won't see an anarchist society in your lifetime, but that's irrelevant. What's relevant is if you're involved in struggle, to improve people's conditions, the everyday conditions, and if you're involved in struggles to devolve power, then you're, whether you accept it or not, you're involved in that anarchist struggle to create a society without rulers. All right, let's move on. I am sometimes, even I, get a little bit... Look, I had to laugh. I had to laugh. I really had to laugh. There are all these august, suited people at the State Library yesterday of Victoria, and they were listening to Mr. Thompson, Murdoch's confidant, the head of his news organisation, News Corporation. Now, Mr. Thompson has an interesting history from copy boy to poo bar, a 40-year history of the Murdoch's. And you usually know when you do a you know an oration, and this was the so-called Keith Murdoch oration, which was the uh, beginning of the Murdoch Empire. You'd expect people to talk about something substantial, something real, something that would give humanity a lift, something that would add to the public debate. Now, fortunately like Eurovision, I wasn't there. I was not there. I was not there. But talking about calling the pot black. Now, Mr Thompson was indignant. Indignant. The Washington Post had done an article which had denigrated the Murdoch family. Denigrated the Murdoch family. Poor old Rupert and dead, what's his name, Keith and poor old Lachlan and the rest of the uh, products of his loins, of Rupert's loins. I'm thinking to myself, what? Isn't this the newspaper empire that built its reputation, expanded its fortunes on denigrating other people and destroying their lives? and actually not being actually worried that much about what is real and what is an interpretation of reality. And for Mr Thompson to jump up and down regarding some newspaper in Washington taking the mickey out of the Murdoch, you know, dynasty, and that's, you know, one of his mainstays of his little oration, the copy boy who's now 
Pooh Bar of News Corporation, you really have to wonder what type of people these people are. And then it got better. It got better because I've been, I read the transcript. It's got better. Here he was, Mr. Thompson, the Pooh Bar of News Corporation, jumping up and down, screaming about liberal indignation, about the fact there are people using social media to bring up ideas, you know, which they can't control. Now, obviously, the Murdoch Corporation has got a problem. They never really believed that the net was going to be as uh, successful as it was. And they were right behind the eight ball when it came to uh, changing their business model to incorporate the net. Now, obviously, they're hemorrhaging money at a rate of knots. The Australian... Australia's only national newspaper has never made a dollar profit in its life. Never made a dollar profit for the Murdochs in its life. But in terms of political influence, well, it is the most influential paper. And people think the legacy media is dead. The legacy media isn't dead. If you listen to radio, watch TV, go on the net. It's what the legacy media raises that morning, which is the news of the day and the conversation of the day. So here we have Mr. Thompson, Poobah of News Corporation, from Copyboarded News, Poobah, started his life, I think, with the Sun or the Herald here in uh, good old Melbourne town 40 years ago, jumping up and down, moral indignation. If there is one group of legacy papers and television stations that uses moral indignation as their battering ram. It is the Murdoch Corporation. So it looks like, it looks like they've been outmanoeuvred on both fronts in terms of destroying people's lives and in terms of moral indignation. All you've got to do is open up one of that crappy pieces of newspaper if you're sitting at a cafe somewhere and you can actually see the moral indignation oozing out of the pages, the moral indignation oozing out of their uh, platforms all over the world. That's what they base their fortune on. So, Mr Thompson, the sooner you retire, and I have heard that the Murdochs are not very kind to executives who retire in terms of uh, payouts, because let's not forget it's still a... uh, basically a family-owned company, although it's got uh, influence all over the world. But I just can't believe it. I can't believe it. Don't these people actually wake up in the morning, look at themselves in the mirror when they're shaving or brushing their teeth and say, you know, how do they expect us to take us seriously? If you want to really have a good belly laugh, a really good belly laugh, and I advise you to uh, make sure the floor is clean so you can roll around when you're belly laughing. This is the type of belly laughing that'll knock off you off your chair and you'll be rolling around in fits of laughter for hours on the floor. Have a look at the transcript of his speech. You will be amazed. You will be amazed at the hypocrisy of this organisation which is starting to feel a little bit of an economic squeeze. 
on its rivers of gold. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscan. I'm hosting today's program. Public housing, everybody's business. Now, those of you who have been involved in state elections over the last few years will have noted that public housing does not rate a mention. And those of you who are now involved in this federal election uh, uh, scam, you know, I do call it a scam, will notice that housing is still not an issue. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Here we have a society where a significant proportion of the population, over 70%, are either buying a home, renting a home, or are, you know, wandering the streets looking for a home. And the concept of housing, especially public housing, doesn't rate a mention. We've seen the social community housing sector hijack the debate, removing the word public as if it's some type of disease from the discussion. It's all about the private sector, whether it's for profit or not for profit, providing housing for the disadvantaged, in inverted commas, brackets, exploited members of our society. Now, housing, especially public housing, should be front and centre of this federal election campaign. Although housing is, public housing is a state responsibility, constitutionally, there are many things a, state, a federal government can do to promote the concept of public housing. And listening to both the opposition, and to a lesser degree the Greens, and the coalition government, which is in caretaker mode currently, you would think that the word public was somehow some type of Ebola-like virus that you need to recoil from. Just extraordinary. Now, I've been involved in the public housing campaign. This is the third year. And I'm the first one to admit we've had minimal, if any, traction. Although the previous housing minister uh, in Victoria was uh, shunted aside to another portfolio. Mr Richard Wind is now the public housing minister. The fact is, this is not an issue that seems to have caught the public imagination. It's all about rental subsidies, first home buyer grants, negative gearing, stimulating the marketplace, reducing interest rates, removing the squeeze on lending by the banks currently. But we never hear the concept of public housing. And where there is public housing left in this country, all we see, especially in New South Wales and Victoria, is governments doing the best they can to destroy what's left of the public housing sector and hand it over to the community and social housing sector, which essentially are private organisations, irrespective of their uh, you know, mission statements. They are privately owned organisations whose major responsibilities to that organisation. The thing about public housing, it is free of people making judgment. It's about need. It should be about need. It's about providing safe, secure housing. 
And those of us, you who think that, you know, the campaign we've been running really hasn't gained traction, you're quite right. And the campaign is very simple. Across this country, if we use stamp duty revenue on property sales and significance, about $7 billion in Victoria, that's the state I'm familiar with, this is where I come from, or where I live, if we used stamp duty revenue, quarantine for public housing, you could house 20% of Australians in public housing within a decade. And you don't need this huge uh, expansion of mega blocks of housing. You can actually spot purchase around the community, especially in regional Australia, out of suburbs and some inner suburban uh, areas. So it's a matter of political will. It's not a matter that we can't do it. It's a matter of political will. We as a community have decided to treat housing as a speculative commodity that is used not to provide secure, stable accommodation for people so they shouldn't grow up in a safe, secure, stable environment, but as a speculative way to make money. And when figures come out that 10 to 15% of all housing is just locked up and left empty, you realise this explosion we've had in real estate values, over 500% increase in the last 25 years, for the same property, is basically speculation on steroids. So, if you are interested in the federal election campaign, if you see one of these aspiring um, politicians in your electorate, raise the issue of public housing and watch them squirm. They'll talk about social housing, community housing, affordable housing. They'll ignore your question. Ask them about what responsibility does the state have to the people it controls? What responsibility does the state have to its citizens and the permanent residents of this country? Why is the word public such a verboten word? You know, I could use a four-letter word, which I'm not. But the word public somehow seems to have taken on an odium that it has never deserved. We talk about public service, people go, ugh, public space, ugh, public housing, ugh, public infrastructure, maybe. Think about it. In an era of privatisation, globalisation, deregulation and corporatisation, the major sector of the economy that has been uh, taken the hit has been the public sector. And we find ourselves in this situation today. So as far as I'm concerned, go to, webs- go to our Facebook page, Public Housing Everybody's Business. Have a look at what we're doing. Take up the campaign. Take it up in your part of Australia. See how you go with it. Because having safe, secure, stable accommodation for all people on this continent should be one of the primary goals of every level of government, local, state and federal. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Scott, I'm hosting today's program. Now, if somehow the current election campaign hasn't really kind of excited you, although there does seem to be some differentiation these days between the Labor Party 
and the uh, Liberal National Party. There does seem to be some differentiation in this campaign. Now, this is the first election since 1988 that I'm actually not actively involved in as a candidate and I've always run as an independent candidate. And the reason is I'm very slow, very slow when it comes to learning. After 37 years, I've realised that the odds against independence being elected to Parliament are basically insurmountable in the majority of cases. Insurmountable. So for the last three years, I've been actively involved as the uh, Secretary of Public Interest before corporatists in a campaign to set up a new political party. Oh, not a new political party, I hear you say. Well, unfortunately, in a representative democracy where the great majority of people think parliamentary elections are the beer or an end all of being a citizen, they equate parliamentary elections with a democracy, we need to have a bit of skin in the game to be in the game. It's a little bit trying to win Tats Lotto without actually buying a ticket. So as I said, these independent campaigns over the years have been interesting. Some have gained traction, some have fallen flat in their faces. I'm the first one to admit it. And you've got to remember that an election campaign is an expensive undertaking just to Nomination fee for the Senate is $2,000. $1,000 for the House of Reps and the list goes on and on. So there is a lot of uh, activity. You know, there's a lot of uh, financial input for minimal gain. So our attempts to register public interest before corporate interest as a federal political party have been slow, let's be honest. We've had a number of congresses. We've got over 400 members in the uh, electoral roll. But we actually need a hundred. We need actually five hundred and fifty on the electoral roll before we can actually apply for legislation. It's that simple. For re- sorry, f- apply for registration, not legislation. We've got the cart before the horse. As a federal political party, now if the federal election campaign is not turning you on. If you're sick and tired of the same people promising you the same things and then reneging on their promises once they're elected, if you're sick and tired of the parliamentary process, if you're sick and tired of it all, and you're not on the streets on a daily basis being involved in direct action and campaigns, well, this is one way you can actually make a difference by joining public interest before corporate interests. Very simple. We'd like to register this political party before the end of 2019 because the beauty of having a registered political party gives you some advantages. One, it allows you to nominate for any seat in the country. This is very useful, especially in by-elections where people's uh, views are concentrated on a particular issue. It means you don't have to go through the rigmarole of finding 100 people on the electoral roll for the Senate and 50 on the, in, the elect, in the electorate you're standing in, in the House of Reps in order to nominate. Just turn up at the electoral office and say, hello, yes, I'm a member of a registered political party, public interest before corporate interest. We'd like to stand 15 candidates in 15 different seats and then, run a, and then you can actually run a coordinated campaign about putting the interests of the many, the public, before the interests of the few, 
unaccountable corporations whose major responsibilities to their major shareholders. So, if you think I'm begging you to join, not really. At the end of the day, we get the political system and social milieu we live in we deserve, and if we decide to step back and just let it all happen, well, nothing will ever change. You know that. It's a bit like watching a river meander. You get a flood for the course of the river to change occasionally, a massive flood. And public interest before corporate interest could be a massive flood, not just in terms of electoral politics, but in terms of uh, direct action, because obviously public interest before corporate interest is involved in a number of uh, direct action uh, campaigns. If you go to our website, www.pibci.net, you can see what we're involved in. Happy to conduct a public meeting in your area of the world. You organise it. One of us will turn up. One of the executive will turn up to speak at the public meeting. You want to join? It's very simple. You can either leave a message on 0439 395 489 and we'll send you out an application form. Don't want to speak to me and I can understand why he wouldn't. You can always uh, email for an application form at info at pibc.net or you can actually download it directly from the website pibcpibci.net and don't forget I've got a Twitter stream pibci underscore au and a YouTube channel uh, public interest before corporate interests so there's lots of things happening as far as public interest before corporate interest is concerned as I said before we can continue as we are uh, organising campaigns like uh, Public Housing Everybody's Business and a number of other campaigns we've been involved in, or we can actually get involved in uh, direct political action as a registered political party. But to be a registered political party, we need more members on the electoral roll. So I'm encouraging you to have a look at what we stand for, look at the Constitution, and if you're interested, join. As I said before, change doesn't come from casting a ballot every three to four years. It comes from being actively involved at all levels of political discourse, whether it's extra-parliamentary through campaigns, whether it's parliamentary through elections. We need to utilise every platform available to us to promote the idea of putting the interests of the many, the public, before the interests of the few. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Well, let's move on. Now, I like to look at the situation in Sudan. You say, Sudan? Sudan? Why would anybody bother? Because in many regards, it acts as a template about what can be achieved, what what the potentials are, is of a mass political movement that come up from the ground. Now, I'll give you a little bit of background, and then we'll look at the current situation, because uh, they are at a crossroads. Now, Sudan is about a seventh the size of Australia, so it's a decent piece of earth and it sits south of Egypt and on its western border it has uh, 
Libya and Chad. On its southern border is southern Sudan, which achieved independence after a 50-year war of independence from Sudan in 2011. And on its eastern border, it has Ethiopia and Eritrea. There are about 40 million people live in Sudan, and Sudan is a quite an interesting uh, conglomeration of people. It was a British colony till 1956, when it achieved independence. Now, you all know about, you know, the Gordon of Khartoum who got slaughtered, when the British got slaughtered in Khartoum, it was in 1886 when there was a revolt, a people's revolt against colonisation. And if you ever come to Melbourne, you'll be uh, amazed at how important this uh, little event was, little old Melbourne town and all over Australia and the British Empire because the British had actually been defeated and General Gordon had been killed. At Khartoum, there's this huge mon- monument near the Treasury Building, which was built by the people of Melbourne to uh, General Gordon. Quite extraordinary when you think about it. And the reason I'm talking about Sudan to some degree is we do have certain links because a number of, well, from the colonies, of soldiers went actually back to uh, Sudan to uh, put the natives in their place in inverted commas after the downfall of. Gordon in Khartoum in 1886. But the other reason is there is a huge link between Sudan and some of our nearest northern neighbours. So it achieved independence in 1956. uh, Most people, Sudan is a predominantly Muslim nation, but it's not all inhabitants are Muslim and the thing that people may find a bit interesting about Sudan is it's a multicultural society in the west you have people who are of uh, African descent and in the Nubia mountains which is part of uh, Sudan which is uh, just south of the Egyptian border there are many people who are still living traditional lifestyles as animists in the centre you have the Arab speaking part which includes the capital Khartoum. And in the West, the people in the West don't speak Arabic. They, they, are, they are more related to Tigrans from Eritrea and Ethiopia. So it's a, it's, it's a multicultural, it's been a multicultural society for decades. Now, Sudan had a democratically elected uh, legislature between 85 and 89. In 1989... Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, with a number of military officers, staged a coup. And Omar al-Bashir was installed as a leader of Sudan. Ten years later, Omar al-Bashir and Hassan Ariabi fell out. Now, Hassan al-Ariabi had been the leader of the Muslim Brotherhood and this led to the slaughter in Darfur where that dispute was played out in Darfur. At that particular time, this is around 1999, Sudan was not only involved in a genocidal operation against its own people in Darfur, it was also involved in a, in a uh, operation 
to prevent Southern Sudan, which was the United Nations Protectorate, from gaining its independence from Sudan. And to a large degree, this was due to the, the fact that most of the oil from this area came from Southern Sudan. Now, pretending to be a good Muslim and using the cloak of uh, religious piety, the deal between the military and the Muslim Brotherhood was to introduce Sharia law into Sudan. Now, Sudan is not all Muslim. There's a large Coptic Christian population. There's animists, traditional people, and obviously there's many Muslim people. But Sharia law was introduced in 1989, which was something which was, you know, that the Sudanese never expected to occur. At the same time, when Omiya al-Bashir fell out with the Muslim Brotherhood, he was concerned about the loyalty of the military and he funded one of the most brutal organisations we've seen during the 20th and 21st century, the Janjaweed, which basically means a genie on horseback. These were basically uh, private militias paid for by the government that were used to slaughter thousands of people in southern Sudan and Darfur. So what's this got to do with us, to Australia? Well, Mr Omiya, the dictator, al-Bashir, has been using the last 30 years of his reign, a brutal reign in this area, to actually enrich himself and his family. And although he's got bank accounts in London and Switzerland, most of the money has been transferred to Malaysia. That's right, our northern neighbour, Malaysia. Billions of dollars of privatised assets have been transferred to Malaysia. And when you see the previous Prime Minister getting a $1 billion donation from Saudi Arabia, you begin to understand the links. And again, the cloak of religion has been used to actually enrich themselves, these people. Now, late last year, after 30 years of military dictatorship, a disastrous civil war in Darfur and southern Sudan, with the country facing economic ruin because of the amount of resources that had been removed from the country, the people had enough. And small demonstrations across the country became larger and larger and larger. And despite over 100 people being shot dead, what we saw is this revolution from the ground up, a revolution which had no real leaders, grow and grow and grow and grow to such an extent the military became concerned about the loyalty of their junior troops. Because you've got to remember, 
you can give all the orders you like, but if you haven't got people to carry out those orders, there's problems. So these demonstrations has grown as the government hasn't felt it had the power to order its junior soldiers and junior officers to shoot their own people. Now, at the same time, the the din for al-Bashir's resignation grew so extensive that in order to save their skin, the dictator for 30 years, al-Bashir, stepped down. He wasn't removed. He stepped down, trying to maintain control of the situation. Now, what's happened is, interestingly, the Janjaweed, has become the pin-up boy of the European Union in an attempt to stop migration to Europe. The European Union and a number of European governments, including France and Holland and Britain, have been funding the same militia which was responsible for the Darfur atrocities over nearly 20 years ago to stop people coming to Europe from that part of the world. And when Omir al-Bashir was overthrown, well, was forced to resign about on the 12th of April, we had a little bit of uh, dancing going around where the military thought they'd won the situation, but people refused, especially young people, refused to be cowed and continued to demonstrate across the country, town after town, city after city. This is a general revolution from the ground up. A cry for change. A demand for change. The military government, fearing their own junior officers and military who they couldn't really trust to turn their guns on the Sudanese people, have replaced Omar al-Bashir with a man called Abdul Fattah Bohan, who is the general who's responsible for the Sudanese presence in Yemen, is responsible for the atrocities that are occurring in Yemen supporting the United States-Saudi Arabian coalition in that part of the world. He is now the titular head of the military council, which is currently trying to run Sudan, despite process by hundreds of thousands, not millions of Sudanese. At the same time, in order to enforce discipline, the Janjawi, which are the, the killers in Darfur, the leader of the Janjawi, Hermaditi, is now the second in command in Sudan. That's right. The leader of the Janjawi, the mass killers in Darfur, are now second in command, Hermedetti is second in command 
in Sudan after General Lieutenant General Abdul Fattah Bohan. Incredible, isn't it? So what the military has done is, concerned about the younger troops not following orders and shooting their own people and uh, dispersing these mass protests and sending people home, they have formed this unholy alliance with the Janjaweed, this private militia, which again is supported by the European Union and the Sudanese military, to form what's called a rapid response force, whose job it'll be, if they can get enough momentum, to violently disperse the protests that are occurring in Sudan. So currently we're in a state of flux. The Sudanese protesters are refusing to move until the military council calls elections for a civilian government. At the same time, the same people who were responsible for the atrocities in Darfur and southern Sudan in the last 30 years continue to maintain power with the assistance of one of the most brutal organisations that this planet has seen in the 21st century, the Janjui, whose leader, Hermedetti, is now the deputy head of the country after the military dictator. What's interesting is the fact that European governments have been willing to hold discussions with her Medetti, the Dutch, the English, the French, and that some type of deal has been worked out to ensure the Sudanese continue their military presence in Yemen. So it is a difficult situation for the local Sudanese people, especially young people, who are the backbone of this protest, who want a different type of life, who no longer want to live under Sharia law, who no want to live in a dictatorship, who want to be masters and mistresses of their own destiny. Because if this revolt succeeds in Sudan, there are many other dictators in this part of the world, in the Middle East, in this part of Africa, who are beginning to tremble because of popular disconsent. Look at Algeria. Now, the Arab Spring may have failed, but we now have a new spring. A new chapter in the spirit of revolt, in a spirit that people believe they have the capacity and the right to determine their own lives without the need of dictators and people dictating how they should live, what they should believe in, what should they should wear. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. If you come to Melbourne, I'm sure you go to Federation Square. Now, you may not know this, that the Anarchist Moon Institute had been involved in a campaign 10 to 15, or for about five years, 15 years ago, to actually open up Federation Square to the public. Now, although taxpayers' money, a billion dollars, was used to create Federation Square, 
Federation Square has never been an open public space. It has been managed by a private corporation who's on behalf of the State Government of Victoria. Liberal National, Liberal Party, Labor Party, and they're concerned. And we had to, you know, over over the years we had to, you know, uh, had standoffs with police and private security guards who refused, who tried to refuse us the right to assemble in Federation Square because they wanted Federation Square to be a nice little place for private enterprise, not a huge space for public protest, a space for public gatherings. And they're concerned recently that people aren't going to Federation Square. They can't be bothered. It's windswept. Now, if they made Federation Square the public protest centre of Melbourne, you would find that thousands, hundreds of thousands would flock to Federation Square and use the facilities. Currently, most Melbourne protests are held outside the State Library, which is a very tight, compacted space. Now, you try to organise a demonstration in Federation Square, and we do on a number of occasions. We don't ask for a permit, and we won't be asking for a permit on the 3rd of June for our Mobo Day celebrations. And we won't be asking for a permit when we go down there for public interest before corporate interests. But the fact is, if Federation Square wants to, the government wants it to be a, you know, a successful area and all the shopkeepers are crying out, they're all going bankrupt, well, open it up to the people. Open it up to the people. Don't make it some privatised space. Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, this weekend is the Indonesian elections. Over 193 million people have the right to vote in the Indonesian archipelago. There'll be one group that won't be voting, and that's the West Papuans. They have made a decision to boycott the Indonesian elections. And the reason they're boycotting the Indonesian elections is very simple. Refugees are streaming down from the highlands and the forests as the Indonesian military continues a crackdown on West Papuan independence activists who've been active for over 60 years. Now, the West Papuan independence movement is one of the most ignored, marginalised independence movement on the face of the planet. So in an attempt to put West Papua on the UN decolonisation list, the United Nations decolonisation list, the West Papua office here in Melbourne is trying to raise 1.8 million signatures to be presented to the Australian government to get them to vote for the inclusion of West Papua on the UN decolonisation list. And if you want to get involved in that campaign, go to www.decolonise.com. And if you want to be a member of the West Papuan Rent Collective, give me a ring, 0439 395 489 or email me at anarchistage at yahoo.com. The Rent Collective is a very simple concept. It's about ordinary Australians, people like you and me, paying the rent for the West Papuans to run their own independent struggle the way they see fit in an office in this city. And the office here, in its fifth year of existence, 
as a direct result of the uh, uh, Rent Collective, which I'm a convener of, has now been running a very successful campaign and it's quite possible that in August, September, the West Papua will be put on the UN decolonisation list. But as far as the Indonesian election is concerned, West Papuans have, as a whole, decided to boycott the elections because there's nothing in it for them. As far as the rest of the Indonesian people is concerned, well, it's not much of a choice, is it? You've got an old Suharto general, you know, Suharto's former son-in-law, uh, kind of uh, pitting horns with the current uh, incumbent, Joko, or whatever he is now, Joko. So, you know, keep your eye on it. It's important because there has been a big push in Indonesia, courtesy of Saudi Arabian money and Sudanese money to a significant degree, as well as in Malaysia, to, uh, you know, uh, go down the path of... Uh, of a Muslim fundamentalism, they've been quite successful in this part of the world. So it's something to keep your eye on to see who actually wins that election. Uh, it's in our corner of the universe and it's important that we uh, take a bit. Now, I can see you all getting excited about the Easter Anzac Day 10-day break. That's right. And I can see you all racing out to cafes and restaurants and living the good life and, you know, sitting back in your chair and saying, isn't life wonderful? Well, it may be wonderful for people like you and me who may avail ourselves of this opportunity to spend a few days away from the uh, daily grind of work. But think of all those hospitality workers in Australia because in 2017, the Fair Work Commission... You like that Fair Work Commission, courtesy of the Liberal National Party. Remember, Turnbull was Prime Minister in those days. Decided its wisdom to remove penalty rates, decrease penalty rates initially and eventually remove penalty rates for all hospitality workers. Now, let's not forget that over 50% of hospitality workers are underpaid in the first place. Many of them are cash paid. Many of them have no, no protections. They're quite casual as far as their contract is concerned. But now the government, in its wisdom through the Fair Work Commission, has said that these people will lose their penalty rates, and not just hospitality workers, but sales staff. So the poorest paid people in Australia, the least organised and the most poorly paid, are now being denied penalty rates for working hours where the rest of us are enjoying ourselves. I mean, where's the justice in that? Now, obviously, the Labor Party has said they will... If elected, they will change this, and hopefully they will. Why should people who need to work ungodly hours or hours where the rest of us are enjoying ourselves on a holiday shouldn't be paid, compensated for that time? Because that's a time they've got to have with their friends and family and children. Now, we expect them to be there, you know, on, on, on Easter Sunday or Easter Monday or you know, Anzac Day or other days, and we expect to, you know, be able to enjoy that time off, but why should they be compensated for working these hours? 
So it's quite an extraordinary, isn't it, the, we have here in this country the most poorly paid workers who basically survive through overtime payments, now being denied those overtime payments, not because of the crooked employers, and I can tell you there's plenty of them in the hospitality trade, you know, where cash is the, is the, um, is the byword as far as employment is concerned, cash in hand. Why should they be denied that right by governments? It's quite extraordinary. It really is. They didn't try it on the nurses or the police or the fire brigade or uh, the construction unions because, you know what, they're all strongly unionised sections of the economy. And that's the key. You're not strongly unionised. Your chances of uh, maintaining what few rights you have disappear. Look, uh, thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. That's 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You want to join public interest before corporate interest? Download the application form from Pipsy, P-I-B-C-I dot net. Want to find out what's going on? Go to Pipsy dot net. Go to the YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. I attempt to do one session a week on an important topic, and this week's topic, uh, I think I'll be talking about democracy. In inverted commas, what's it all about? Charlie. All right? So, think about that. Don't forget, the 1st of May, we will be having celebrations here in uh, Melbourne to celebrate the 1st of May on Wednesday, the day it occurs. I'll talk about more that next week where I'll be giving the history of uh, May Day. And I think the important thing to remember is if you don't get involved, nothing changes. Take a leaf out of the book of the uh, Sudanese protesters and the protesters in Algeria. Public pressure can make a difference and it's the only way to get real change in society thank you for listening to the anarchist world this week via the community radio network this program is podcast you can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au you can write to me at post office box 20 parkville 305u go to the facebook page toscano for the public Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Go to the YouTube channel, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org, anarchistmedia.org. Facebook pages, Public Housing, Everybody's Business, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Don't say there's nothing happening. Lots of things happening. Come and join us. Spend an hour with us. 10 hours a week, a day, a year. Become part of a social and political movement which is there to devolve power, share wealth and create that new world in our hearts. Thank you for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station courtesy of the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast 3cr.org.au. Listen to the Anarchist World this week, next week. Minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday 
Listen to The Anarchist World this week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger! You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.